Hey everybody, I'm Maggie. I'm Amber. And this is Crime Country. Today, we are doing part two of our Evil Genius recap. Okay, so if you didn't listen to last week, we are doing a review recap of... Yeah. Yeah. Of the docuseries Evil Genius from Netflix. And last week we did episodes one and two. This week we're doing three and four. It's not our normal deal. We usually do lesser known crime stories one state at a time. But we just finished up the states and hit our one year anniversary. So this is kind of like our one year anniversary celebration. Uh, If you haven't listened to last week's, I'd say probably go back and do that, or you might be a little lost, but I will start us off with a recap of what we talked about last time. And if you don't like listening to this kind of thing, then just skip this week and last week, because (laughs) they're not for you. Exactly. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite part about reviewing a docuseries so far, Amber? I just think it's fun because when we make time to just watch the docuseries and then we can kind of like come up with our ideas about it and it's a lot easier because then I don't feel like I have to write pages and pages of notes and like little nitty gritty details. I can just flow with it. Okay, well, I did all those things for this one. I wrote way, way more pages of notes for this than I normally do. But I agree, it's less work. It's just like writing down what someone else is saying in my own words and then adding my thoughts to it but uh i definitely have more notes than usual yeah you definitely did all the heavy lifting this week and i'm just like coasting by thanks to you it's still fun though so if this (laughs) podcast transitions into a recap podcast i apologize um if you don't like it, and I say thank you, or you're welcome if you do like it. <laughs> um, I tried listening to a new podcast the other day because I listen to podcasts constantly because I'm just at home with two small children and they it's my adult interaction basically is listening yeah. to podcasts. So uh, I, I looked up on this podcast and it was these two like early 20 something gorgeous girls talking about like dating and men and like how to take a good nude selfie to sex oh. with and I was just like oh this isn't for me <laughs> like this is not where I'm at in life and I cannot relate to these people like you go girls good luck I don't know like this is not this isn't for me this isn't my my podcast so I gave it a try but yeah, I don't know if I would have hung in there with that one either. Yeah, I listened to like the full first episode and I was just like, mm, yeah, not that, that's not where I'm at in life. <laughs> nope, uh, we're, we're not doing those nude selfies and sending those across town. Nope. They were talking about like taking nude selfies for each other next time they're like, need some to send to a guy to get him interested or to win him back or something. And I was just like, oh cannot relate uh yeah nope not i hey, Amber, you want to get on zoom and i'll take some nude selfies for you to send to your husband oh yeah please that'd be so great <laughs> so, um i do want to do like a boudoir photo shoot though at some point in my life i i 
had a friend once who was like, I do boudoirs. And it was like a new friend that I didn't know that well. And I, and she was like, yeah, I always need like models. And I was like, I would do that. And so she like came to my house and it was like the most amateur bullshit. And she oh, no. didn't know like poses or lighting. And you know how like really good boudoir photos make any woman look beautiful like no matter the body type these ones were like highlighting my flaws and it was just like oh I don't want anyone to see these pictures ever like this is (laughs) terrible (laughs) and then she ended up being a crazy person and we're I don't even remember her name anymore because we were friends for like a month and it was just like, oh yeah, we don't really vibe. But what, like, I didn't say any of that to her. It was nice, but it was they were not good pictures. And so I would like to do it again. But if I ever did, I would first of all like want to lose weight. Second of all, I would like spend the money to have a really oh, yeah. good photographer that I like saw their work and appreciated it and knew they could capture the femininity of any human, like female body or yeah. human body, and you know, like really. Yeah. That's something I would really want to spend the money on, even my cheap ass, because... Oh yeah, me too, and I'm a penny pincher that I would want to spend the money on, but it's so funny that you say that that photographer just, like, got every flaw, because this weekend I got this new swimsuit, and I was all super stoked about it. You great in that! So, that was the picture I took, okay? I got the angles, blah, 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 and then Aaron's like, that's not... That's not how you do it, Amber. Let me take the picture. Oh, God. And then, oh, my God. Dude, he takes these pictures of me, and I'm like, Aaron, I look at that, and I want to barf. I'm like, you can't like that. That's not a good picture. He, like, takes the worst pictures ever, and my eyes are, like, all cross-eyed or closed, and I just, like, he gets the wrong angle, and I look like a freaking potato or something, and I'm just like... Um, no, I'm not posting this. I'm not going to post the, fi- the picture that I took. I'm 100% uh, the same way. I'm the selfie queen. Ask anyone. Yeah. Everybody's like, we should take a group picture. Oh, do you want me to take that picture for you? No, no, I got it. Just give me the phone. Who's taking the picture? I got it. I know the <laughs> angles. We will all look good in this picture if I take it. Thank you all. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. the selfie queen for sure. Okay, this was like turned into a really long intro having nothing to do with Evil Genius. But, you know... Feel good about yourself, ladies and gentlemen, and take boudoir shots, but, like, make sure the photographer is good. <laughs> that's, that's a key. <laughs> okay, let's get into episode three and four of Evil Genius. Alright, so today we're going to recap episodes three and four of the Evil Genius docuseries, but I'm going to give a quick recap of what we talked about last episode so everybody has a reminder if they listened last week and they don't want to like re-listen today to remember where we're at. So help me if I miss anything in this recap, bring up anything you think might be important for anybody to know going into episodes three and four. Which I did not rewatch this week, so I'm just going off my notes. But hopefully we're good. I have really detailed notes. We'll be fine. Your notes are baller. Yeah, and I've seen it a few times. So, uh, all right. So the recap of episodes one and two: a man named Brian Wells robbed a bank. He had a bomb strapped to his neck on a cuff, and it exploded outside of the bank while he was detained by police. He also had a cane that was actually a gun 
and he died from the bomb exploding. Three days later, his co-worker, Bomb... Bomb... Bomb, bomb, bomb. His name was not Bomb. Um, three days later... <laughs> three days later, his co-worker, Bob Panetti, died as well, but he died of an apparent overdose. But since they worked at the same company, it seems suspicious. And then three weeks after the bomb and the pizza bombing is what it's called because he works for a pizza company and he was delivering pizzas when he got attacked and had this bomb put around his neck to rob and like forced to rob his bank so three weeks after the pizza bombing a man named bill rothstein contacts the police and is like hey there's a dead body in my freezer and marjorie deal armstrong is responsible for it and the man in the freezer is Jim Roden. He was Marjorie's ex-boyfriend. But the body was at Bill's house, not Marjorie's. Bill says Marjorie did it and that he just helped hide the body. Marjorie says Bill did it and hid the body and she was just keeping her mouth closed because she was scared. But Marjorie seemed crazy and Bill seemed somewhat sane. So somehow Marjorie's arrested and Bill's not for his part in anything that he admits to doing, even though he admits to doing a lot of things. Yeah. And then we ended the last episode with the narrator of the docuseries, whose name is Trey. And he has been writing back and forth with Marjorie and he asks her if she knows anything about the pizza bombing and she agrees to talk to him if he helps her with money to get legal assistance and then we go three and four yeah so there's a lot of other stuff in there um there's another guy in there um i can't think of his name right now but he comes up later on in three and four kevin something kevin bacon kevin pierce no I think it is a Kevin, though, right? I don't know. Uh, uh, we'll get to it when we get to it, and then we'll I'll tell you guys if you don't remember from the last episode or didn't listen to the last episode. So, this week... It's real cray. Yeah, everything's, everything's crazy. Trey, the narrator, is writing back and forth with Marjorie, and he's showing us some of the letters that he's exchanged with her, and they're kind of disorganized but it's just like an ongoing stream of consciousness for the most part and then we hear recorded phone calls he has with her while she's in prison she's actually in like a mental hospital at this point in time instead of a prison because she's found guilty but mentally insane so she has to be held in the mental hospital for like seven and a half years before she's eligible for parole or something so when he starts reaching out to her the regular media doesn't have access to her because she's in a mental hospital but she can write to anybody she wants, and she chooses to write back to him. Part three. Jackpot. Yeah. Part three of the series starts with us hearing Marjorie's voice again, and she's saying, I'm a normal woman. I shop at the mall. I rescue dogs and cats. I'm normal. I have a genius IQ. Well, that's not normal, Marjorie. Yeah. And this is actually not the first time we're not just hearing her voice. We're actually seeing her in a prison interview. So... The narrator helped get her an attorney, and this is the one filmed interview she's ever done, and it's with her attorney. So we're actually seeing a videotape from, like, the attorney's office, and he's basically on a Zoom call with Marjorie. So we're seeing, like, him sitting at a desk and her on a screen in the prison. And so 
we keep getting this footage throughout the rest of the documentary and she is incoherent. Oh yeah. In the end of the last episode, we were talking about how one of the women who was in prison with her came forward and was like, Oh yeah. Marjorie talked all the time about how she was like playing the system and making them think she was crazy so she could get off with an easier sentence for doing this murder. And it's like, I can see her thinking that's what she's doing. Yeah. And maybe playing into it a little bit, but also not realizing how crazy she's coming across when she's not playing into it. Because it's nothing that comes out of her house seem of her house of her mouth seems like a sane person. Yeah, no, I think like everything, like everything that comes out of her mouth is just like what the fuck? It's unhinged. And then she'll ask like the lawyer or the narrator of this documentary a question and like like she wants to know what their actual opinion is and before they get out two words she's just ranting about something else and it's just like okay we're just this is the marjorie show we're listening to you basically it definitely is the marjorie show in that interview for sure yeah so we start this episode hearing her saying i'm a normal woman i shop at the mall i rescue dogs and cats i'm normal i have a genius iq and it's like, well, that's not normal, Marjorie. Most yeah, people yeah. don't have a genius IQ. Exactly. Crazy lady. <laughs> so this is her ranting to her attorney in a video interview. She rants and rants and rants. And in that rant, she admits that she did kill Jim Roden. She eventually actually pled guilty to it, but she was declared not competent or something. Oh. Guilty but legally insane or something like that. So she admits like, yeah, I killed him. And I think she's trying to say that it was self-defense. The lawyer like keeps trying to butt in and be like, can we like about that? Can you clarify? No. And then she just is on to something else. He can't get a fucking word out. He's a very patient man. Super patient because I don't know how he does it. I'm not very patient at all, apparently, because I'm just like... Oh, God, shut up. I'd almost, like, want to hear what she had to say, but I think I'd stop responding because I would just get, like, short with her, and then she would just be, like, mean and done with me, you know? Yeah. You're not listening to me. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. Um, so the lawyer does ask why Jim was put in the freezer, and she says it was Bill Rothstein's idea, and he said he couldn't move him until he was done with a business project. And then Marjorie now says she thinks that business project was the pizza bombing and the murder of Brian Wells. So she's claiming she didn't know anything about the pizza bombing at all. It was all Brian Rothstein. She didn't know what he was planning. She had no idea any of this stuff. What I forgot to say in my recap is that Brian, er, Brian, um, Bill Rothstein died. A couple oh, yeah, years. he died of cancer. Yeah, he had cancer, and it's believed he knew he had cancer and he was gonna die, and he died before any of this was solved. And yeah. the FBI tried to get a deathbed confession out of him, and he refused to give it. So Bill's dead at this point, and it's kind of just left to trying to piece together all these other unreliable storytellers' stories to get the truth at this point literally they are all super unreliable and like 
including Bill, he wasn't a reliable storyteller. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, it kind of bugged me, and I don't know what kind of it was, and I don't know where it came from, and I don't like it. What did it look like? I don't know, because I tried to kill it, but it didn't die, and so I flipped it, and now it's on the carpet somewhere. Was it like a spider, know. or was it like a mosquito? Did it have wings or legs? It had legs, but I don't know if it was like a spider. Was it really, it was, really, really small? It was like pretty small, but I don't know. I don't think it flew, though. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's that time of year. You get some bugs inside. It happens. Oh, I hate bugs. Especially when they're in the house, but it is inevitable. I get pest control, but I mean, bugs are bugs. They're still, like, you can't kill them all. <laughs> You're usually going to get uh, one or two. Um, side note, since we're talking about bugs, just a really quick one. So, when me and Aaron first moved to Utah... We didn't have a house or anything yet, and we were staying in a hotel. That awful hotel in Twila? Ooh, yes. Dude, you already know I'm going to tell everybody. I kind of so, forget the story, but I remember so we, how gross it was. Oh, my God. It was disgusting. First of all, it's, like, super old and, like, scary. Like, picture, like, The Shining, but, like, a mini, like, place of The Shining. It's, like, creepy as fuck. And inside, not outside, because the Shining Hotel was fucking gorgeous outside. Yeah, no, so just inside. <laughs> Creepy uh, as hell. But even inside, I don't think it, the Shining Hotel is not even a good thing. Like, but it was just creepy as shit. So it was like this creepy old hotel, like old, and it was disgusting. I don't even want to say the name of it because I don't want to be that person, but it was terrible. It was so gross. Um, so the guy that works there is walking us to our room, and there's dog shit in the fucking hallway, and he's like, hmm, I don't know how that got there when his fucking dog is roaming around the hotel property. Okay, sir. And then there's just I dog wonder shit. what dog shit in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. So then there's that, and then one day... I'm taking a fucking shower, and then all of a sudden there's just pincher bugs coming out of the faucet, and they're all over, and oh I'm like, God. I'm like, nope, 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 I'm out, and then we didn't stay there, like, I think we might have had to finish, like, two days there, but I was like, nope, get me the fuck out of this place. What do you mean by was- pincher bugs? Huh? What do you mean by pincher bugs? So, like, the little, like brown ones that have the little claw-looking thing on the butt. They're like earwigs. Earwigs. Yeah. Yeah, dude. They were fucking everywhere. And I was like, I can't sleep here. I can't shower here. I I would have literally lit that shower on fire. There's two bugs that like get to me more than any other. Centipedes and fucking earwigs. Those two are the grossest of all the bugs, and they were coming out of the fucking shower. Yeah, dude, I was fucking taking a shower, and I look up, and there's, like, two of them on the fucking shower head, and I'm like, nope. Nope, 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 Oh, my God. Very, like, my nightmare. When you said pincher bugs, I was just thinking, like, you know, like, I don't know, fucking little earwigs. No, 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 no. Earwigs and centipedes, I can't. Yeah, they're disgusting. We've had black widows. 
okay, whatever, you kill a black widow. Like, I, I can handle bugs, but when it comes to earwigs and centipedes, I don't, it makes my skin crawl. Can't do it. That would, I would be like, okay, I'm, I'm naked forever now because my clothes were in there and I can't go back in there. So, yeah, they're disgusting. So, um, that was fun. Yeah. That was a tangent, though. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, here's another one. Uh, so, Utah's not a place that has cockroaches. Like, it's a little too cold in, like, the Salt Lake Valley for the most part. Occasionally, you'll get some cockroaches, but the Salt Lake Valley usually doesn't have cockroaches. So, I hadn't ever seen a cockroach until we went to Arizona. And there was, like, these huge flying cockroaches in a hotel we stayed in when I was, like, 17. And I was like, cool, so don't leave Utah, apparently. Um yeah, don't go to Texas because they have fucking so much cockroaches and they're humongous and they fly. I never knew cockroaches flew. I did because I'd heard stories, but I literally like cockroaches are something I think of in like New York. Like yeah, I don't like live in like New York apartments. Texas too. Utah doesn't have many cockroaches in the Salt Lake Valley. If you get to like Moab, St. George, the yeah, hotter maybe. parts of Utah, yeah. they do have cockroaches, but. Um, I think it gets too cold here for the New York gets cold too. I don't know. Anyways, my dad moved out when he was like 18. Him and his best friend moved across the country and they were just like driving across the country and getting like cheap rooms wherever they could find them and they'd get jobs and like stay in a location for a couple months and work. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, like 1970 or something like that. And, uh... They ended up in, like, New Mexico or something, and they had this, like, super cheap apartment, and they would come home, and if it was late, they would take turns. Like, one of them would ready themselves with, like, a shoe in their hand, and the other one would turn on the light, and the other one would just start hitting. Because as soon as you turn on the lights, you just saw all these cockroaches scatter into holes that you didn't know were there. And so, like, they'd be all over the walls and tables and stuff, and so, like, one of you had to turn on the light, and the other one had to just be ready to start hitting to kill as many of them as you could before they disappeared. Ew, that's disgusting. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. I don't like it. Yeah, so anyways, we haven't gotten into this recap at all. So, Marjorie thinks that Bill Rothstein was part of the pizza bombing, but he's now dead. So, she, we see this, like, deranged interview with her lawyer, and the narrator, Trey, is showing us letters he got from Marjorie. And after a year of writing back and forth with her, he finally had the nerve to ask her why she said Bill Rothstein killed Brian Wells. And she replied that she just assumed Bill masterminded the whole thing and she didn't know anything and wasn't involved. So he's invested all this time and energy and money and she's now saying, like, I don't know. She's so wishy-washy. Like, she'll say one thing once. so wishy-washy. Yeah, everything's back and forth with her. But around the same time she sent him that letter, she wrote another letter to the state saying that she knew a rumor about Ken Barnes. Ken Barnes. not Kevin. Not Kevin. Ken Barnes was a friend of Bill Rothstein. We mentioned him in our other episode. He... Uh, met Marjorie and said she was crazy whatever 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 we find out he's more involved from here on out so 
Marjorie tells the state that she had heard a rumor about Ken Barnes and she wanted to be moved prisons and that she would give them the information she knew if they would move her to a different prison closer to Erie, Pennsylvania. So they move her and I am a little confused in the documentary because they bring this up saying she said it to like the state but then later on they say the FBI used this as leverage to get information from her. And then they moved her. So this isn't on me. I might say that she moved twice. I'm not sure if she moved twice or if she moved once and it was a combined effort. So uh, they move her to get the information that she has. And she says that Bill Rothstein was involved in the, in the murder of Brian Wells, the pizza bombing. And she said another man was also involved and that she knew for a fact they were following the case closely as soon as it happened. And the documentary is like, she turned all the police turned all of Marjorie's belongings to the FBI at this point. So when she'd been arrested originally, they did a warrant on her home and confiscated her whole hoarder's house of shit and just put it all into boxes into storage. Her entire house worth of like, 400 pounds of government cheese and documents. And oh my god. So I had to look up what the fuck government cheese was. What is it? So it's basically I don't even remember now, but it's basically just like processed cheese that's like a mix of cheddar and American that basically you get from the government like for low income families or whatever. You can just get this. this is what they give you with your I don't know. The stipend is the wrong word, but... That's what I assumed. I think things have changed since then, because you just get, like, food stamps, and you can buy whatever kind of cheese is approved yeah. with Wicca or whatever. But, um, does it not need to be refrigerated? It doesn't. Oh. It's so, because it's so processed. Huh, okay. Alright, cool. That was my so, one big question. Like, well, does it not need to be refrigerated? And it doesn't, so... As long as it's not like so hot that it melts like it is in my house right now <laughs> my, my government cheese would fucking go bad because it's so fucking hot same but i mean I, did, my air conditioner works and my house is stupid and we have two air conditioners <laughs> that both work um but like i imagine my attic's really hot my garage is really hot yeah but I, if you have it in like a pantry and like a controlled area and it doesn't attic. Then I don't know. Where do they live again? Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. I think in summer it has at least a month or two of hot, hot. I know it gets really cold in Pennsylvania in the winter, but. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It just melted and then like congealed, and she just had like gross congealed (laughs) government cheese in her attic. Yeah, but no, it doesn't need refrigeration. I mean, I'm sure once you open it, maybe it will, but not generally. It's like. Lovita, basically. Okay. No judgments there. It's probably but delicious. way cheaper. Cheese is delicious. But Velveeta is expensive as shit. Is it? Yeah, Velveeta is, ex- well, in my opinion, but I'm cheap. <laughs> See, I've never bought Velveeta because I don't like it, but. I like it for some stuff, like queso and some mac and cheese. Like my mom, when I was younger, she used to make mac and, like, homemade mac and cheese, but it was just like, Velveeta and like milk and salt and pepper and I fucking love that shit. Yeah, like, I feel like if you grow up on that, you love it forever. 
but yeah. I never had it until I was like older. And, it was and it's not like, good. No, why? No, it's not great. But so, I don't like any mac and cheese besides like Kraft. Kraft macaroni and cheese or nothing. Because otherwise I think it's gross. I don't know. <laughs> like, no thanks. I don't need your homemade macaroni with your elbow noodles. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that you didn't like mac and cheese except for Kraft. Yeah. Well, now I know to never try to make you mac and cheese. Yeah, I'm really picky. <laughs> I also don't like any, like, potato salads. Yeah, I'm not big on potato salad. Or, like, egg salad. Egg salad? Nope, I will not eat egg salad. So, anyways, the police turn all of Marjorie's stuff over to the FBI. So, the FBI has taken over this case, but the police were the ones holding all of her belongings from the search of her, her, her hoarder house. And so, uh, the FBI goes, and the reason is because... The local police searched her house because of the dead body in the freezer, and that was a local case. But now that she is somehow linked to the bank robbery, that is a federal case. And so the FBI knows that she's now somehow linked to it, and they want to see all of her things. So the local police department, like, take her shit. And so they go through just, like, storage containers full of her hoarding shit of, like, so much random stuff. And none of it's helpful until they get to one of the very last boxes. And in that box, they find an angry letter that Marjorie had wrote to the same bank that was robbed. And she had a grudge against that bank because they let her dad take money out of her family account. And she was like banking on her family money to get her by when her parents died and so she was mad that this bank was letting her dad take out his own money basically pretty much yeah yeah so she wrote this angry letter to the bank she kept the carbon copy in in the file because she's a hoarder that's weird though she's a hoarder she keeps everything and so a carbon copy of a letter like people really had notepads that had like carbon copies or she wrote it twice they just said they found an angry letter she wrote but if she wrote it they wouldn't have the actual letter so i think she either wrote it twice or had a carbon copy and with hoarders it's not weird for them to have carbon copies of letters so i'm the one who said carbon copy because i'm making an assumption but i'm pretty sure that's what it was yeah makes sense um so now they have a motive for Marjorie to be involved in the bank heist. They're like, oh, she wants this money because she's, like, banking on her family money that her dad apparently is spending now. And so (laughs) the smiley, thick-neck FBI guy, as I have him (laughs) listed in my notes, he looks like Joe from Family Guy. Um, You know who he also looks like? Who? The, um, like, cop from A Night Every Four Christmas. Or, yeah. Uh, the mayor? Mayor. Yeah, because yeah. his bottom of his face is so big. Yeah. Yes. But he's more muscly, like Joe, or like American Dad. I never watched American Dad, but he looks like yeah. American Dad. Yeah. Um, and then I, <laughs> I saw his face, and I was like, that's a memory for Christmas character. The mayor. Yeah. But always the happy side, because he smiles through whatever horrible thing he's saying. That's um, true. So... He goes to meet with Marjorie himself, and every time he met with her, it would start with him with her yelling at him for like a solid minute. 
and it would be him and his partner and she would just yell and yell and yell and then one of them would kind of like sweet talk her and be like hey marjorie like hello you look so great today yeah and then she'd soften up to him and just start talking like normal but she would start it off just being like you sons of bitches and then one of them would be like marjorie you're so smart and she'd be like Oh, you okay? Let's talk. You're so smart and beautiful. <laughs> so, the FBI apparently helps get her transferred to the other prison closer to Erie where she wanted to be. This is where I got confused because I literally was taking my notes from the episode and she was like, She told the police she wanted to be transferred, and so they agreed. But then it's like they gave everything to the FBI and the FBI got her transferred. So, whatever, she gets transferred closer to where she wants to be. And they're like, okay, now, like, give us more information about this pizza bombing. And she just keeps saying, Bill Rothstein did it. And they're yeah. like, well, we think he probably did, but we need more information. Um, in the meantime, the narrator, Trey, is writing to Marjorie. And he's sending her books and staying in touch. And kind of, like, a lot of his le- letters don't have anything to do with the crimes at all. Just because he's trying to, like, build a rapport with her and stuff. So he starts answering her phone calls whenever she calls from prison. And for years and years, he listens to Marjorie Randall and he records all of it. He has so much stuff from Marjorie in his storage. And most of it's her either rambling or professing her innocence for everything. (laughs) And then one day she mentions the blue van at Bill's house. And she says something about how Bill had his blue van towed away after the bank heist. And then after the FBI came out and said that he was cleared in the bank heist investigation, he had it brought back. And so then the narrator, Trey, is like, I saw a blue van at Bill's house the day I ambushed him in his driveway trying to get an interview. And... So he also remembered that when he talked to Lamont King, the cop that was one of the responders at the bank robbery and at the freezer body, that he said when they got to the third location in the scavenger hunt that there was a blue van coming up the road that stopped and saw them and turned around and left. And so he goes to Lamont King and shows him the video he has when he tried to interview Bill and it didn't work out, but there's a video of the blue van. He's like, is this the van that you saw that day? And the Mont King's like, Oh shit, that's the van. And yeah. And so this is like some crazy breakthrough that the narrator of this docuseries made according to him. And he asks Marjorie if she was with Bill in the van that day. And she was like, of course not. Um, so Lamont King, the cop, tells the other investigators about the van, and he had originally tried to, like, convey that information to the FBI on the day that everything was happening, but it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. So the FBI is like, okay, we're not getting anywhere. We need to just start over. So they just, like, clear everything they think they know about this case, and they start at the very beginning. And they go through every piece of evidence they have. They go through all of the videos, the interviews, the news footage, everything they have since the original bank heist. And they notice um, in one of the videos, there's a like video of the 
note that Brian Wells had, the nine-page note he had to tell him to go the nine-page novel. Yeah, for the first step of the scavenger hunt. And there's this arrow drawn. And it's like this long arrow with a bend right at the end. And then the arrow drawn in the direction of where they want it to point. And then they compare that to one of the arrows drawn on the bomb itself. Because this bomb was in a box with all these directions drawn on it. And it had these arrows that were long lines with a bend at the very end. And then the arrow point drawn to where they wanted it to be. And they're exactly the same. So the FBI is like, okay, so we can tell whoever wrote this nine-page note also drew these instructions on the bomb. Cool. That's something we hadn't realized before. Which they totally should have realized. I don't know why this is a revelation. Yeah. Um, so now we're back talking to Bill Rothstein's best friend. And he looks like Louis Black. Like a skinnier Louis Black. I don't know if I know who Louis Black is. I'm terrible. He's a comedian. He's, like, notoriously angry. Do you see this guy? I still don't know if I know him. Well, (laughs) he's older now than the friend was when he got interviewed, but he looks like a skinnier Louis Black. Is this the Ken guy? No, his other best friend that, like, can't believe that Bill did it, and he's, like, smoking Uh, a cigarette in his kitchen. What's that guy's name? I didn't put it in my notes. I don't know. It's Bill's best friend. But now that I, yeah, I can see that he has like brown hair and looks like Louis Black. So the narrator is showing this friend some of the notes from the bank heist, and this guy's never seen these notes before. And he's like, Wow, um, yeah, that's Bill's handwriting. Um, yeah, that's weird. I've never seen this before, but like, I I think he, he did this. Yeah, he was positive that it was Bill's handwriting. And at before this point in their previous episode, he was, like, convinced his friend could not have been involved in this. He's yeah. like, nope, he was a good guy. Like, he got angry after Marjorie got arrested, but, like, he was dying. And so we all kind of attributed to that. Like, he, I couldn't believe he had a dead body in his freezer, but, like, I don't think he was involved in anything else. And then he sees this writing and he's like crying he's like holy shit that's bill's handwriting like maybe he did do this he was like a really smart guy i guess i didn't know him as well as i thought i did and i knew him for 40 years so he's sad bill's dead and now it's kind of impossible for him to get answers from his friend so that sucks yeah no kidding um in the summer of 2005 two years after the bank heist slash pizza bomber an investigative TV show was digging into the case and they found a man that says on the day of the pizza bombing, he saw a gold car driven by Marjorie in the area of the bombing, driving the wrong way down the highway. He says he told the police like after he saw everything on the news, he was like, "Ah, well, I saw some crazy lady right there driving the wrong way down the highway with crazy eyes Crazy eyes. <laughs> he, he specifically was like, she had crazy eyes. I would recognize her in an instant. And if you yeah. see a picture of Marjorie, you're like, oh yeah, she has crazy eyes. Oh yeah, yeah. And he told the police, but they never formally interviewed him. And that was kind of the end of that. So this oh. investigative TV show sends Geraldo Rivera to Erie, Pennsylvania, 
and they interview this guy and they post this report about how the police and the FBI and everybody investigating this were incompetent and they should have answers by now. This should be a solved case. It's been two years. Like, what the fuck's happening? And the FBI stands by the fact that they just didn't have enough information to prove in a court of law and they couldn't do more at this point. Yeah. Uh, so the narrator of this docuseries, Trey, hears the Geraldo Rivera report and he is like, hey, Marjorie, they're saying you're involved. Are you? And she's like, no, I'm going to sue everybody. No, and then he's going to With, like, way more words. She's like... Yeah. They're all liars and awful and they're all on Bill Rothstein's payroll and they're like, well, Bill's dead. And she's like, he's still paying them from the grave and they're crazy. This is not verbatim, but it's just giving you an idea of how crazy Marjorie sounds. It's yeah, nuts. she sounds like a, like... It's a ranting lunatic. Yeah. She's batshit crazy. Yeah. So then there's an episode of America's Most Wanted about this pizza bombing. Is that what Geraldo was on? I don't even know. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. There's an episode of America's Most Wanted, and this UPS driver sees it, and he's like, oh, uh, I have information. I guess I need to give, but his, like, wife or someone told him he had to call the cops. So he sees this America's Most Wanted episode, and he's like, oh, that day... He obviously remembers because it was such a big deal. He was doing his normal work routine and he saw this large man in bib overalls at a payphone standing with a woman who had crazy eyes and he just could not forget that image. And he saw these people at a payphone at a gas station. The pizza order into Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, where Brian Wells worked, came from a payphone at a gas station, and it was the exact same payphone at the time, and this UPS driver was like, I witnessed that. Like, I know it happened that day. It was weird. So he finally comes forward after the America's Most Wanted PCs, and then three or four women who happened to be in prison with Marjorie during her whole trial came forward to the police as well. And they're like, Marjorie said she shot Jim Roden, who was the man in the freezer at Bill Rothstein's house. And she said it was because he was going to expose the pizza bomber, pizza bomber plot. And Jim was killed three weeks before the pizza bombing happened. So that definitely, definitely implies that Marjorie knew it was going to happen. Oh yeah. And was involved in the entire thing. 100%. One of these women even took notes while Marjorie was talking to her in prison. She just had like a notepad out and was writing down everything Marjorie said. So she Smart was, lady. Yeah. Her name was Kelly. And she has pages and pages of notes that she had taken just like while Marjorie was ranting and raving about the pizza bombing and her role in it. And she gave those to the police and is like, hey... FYI, like, this bitch is confessing everything and uh, hands it all over the police. And she kept asking the police, like, hey, did you get my notes to the FBI? Multiple times. She was like, have you been to the FBI yet? And, like, doesn't hear anything back. 
because it never happened. The police had all of her notes and they never gave them to the FBI. They just put these letters in a file that they labeled the snitch files and put them in a drawer and just never thought of them again. So that's great. Uh, So now, somehow, years later, the FBI is like opening their investigation again. They're finding over finding new information and they're questioning the right police officers and finally someone's like oh we have this folder called the snitch files from this lady who said she knew Marjorie and Marjorie told her some shit uh do you know oh. that? and the FBI's like that would be helpful thanks great that would be awesome uh-huh. so in these snitch files Marjorie had said that Bill built the next the neck bomb his roommate Floyd was involved. We talk about Floyd in the first episode. He lived with Bill for a while. He was wanted for rape of a mentally handicapped teenager in another oh, yeah. state. And oh, guy. he disappeared like the day after the pizza bombing. And um, he's a piece of shit, basically. So these snitch files say that he was involved and Marjorie and Bill, and that the frozen body did have something to do with the pizza bombing case. And she wrote a quote from Marjorie that said, it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the device. Oh, that made me so sick when I heard that on the fucking episode. Yeah. And it's like, how much do you trust these other incarcerated women who might want to like use this information to help themselves? But also, like, how could they make that up? Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. And I feel like I can hear Marjorie saying that. Oh, yeah, I could totally hear that coming out of her mouth with all the other shit that she spouts out. Yes. Yeah, so the other girls in prison are like, she admitted she helped measure Brian Wells' neck for the device that held the bomb. Uh, One of the ladies from prison said that Marjorie would talk about killing specific investigators, saying that she wanted them dead because they were looking to her. And that she wanted to kill Kelly because she knew Kelly was, like, taking these notes or whatever, eventually. And so she would talk to these other girls in prison about killing her as well. Um, so the narrator is asking Marjorie about all of this stuff. And she's like, I'm just an old, rich, white woman. I don't know anything <laughs> about... <laughs> she keeps referring to herself as an old, rich, white woman. Yeah. No, she doesn't say white. I added that. An old rich woman who knew nothing about the bombing until she saw it on the news. When she's asked by the narrator, Trey, but, like, the people in prison are like, no, she was happy to talk about it when we were in prison. So, she's playing a game, for sure. But to the documentarian, she's like, I'm innocent. They can't find any proof that I was involved at all. There's no physical evidence. Exactly. That's the thing she keeps going to. There's no proof that I was involved. Is there any proof? There's no physical proof that I did anything. It's like, but that doesn't mean you didn't. Yeah. There's a lot of fucking other stuff pointing at you. Yeah. Just because it's not fucking DNA, it's still pointing at you. Yeah, she was really banking on that. She was like, there's no physical evidence. Um, So the police had mentioned to the FBI that Ken Barnes was a known friend of Marjorie and Bill and that they should talk to him. So the police go and talk to Ken. He was fishing buddies with Marjorie. They both had 
really big personalities and like to tell tall tales. So in the fall of 2005, the FBI starts interviewing him, thinking he knows something about the pizza bombing. And we're seeing videos of these interviews with Ken Barnes, and um, they're asking him if he knew Brian Wells, the pizza bombing victim. And he's like, yeah, we both knew each other. They both knew each other knew each other through a sex worker named Jessica Hoopsick. So Ken says that Brian would drive Jessica to Ken's house to buy drugs because Ken was a drug dealer. And so then they would have sex. Brian, the, the bombing victim, and Jessica would have sex in Ken's house, the drug dealer. And then after they had sex, Brian would give Jessica money and she would give that money to Ken to buy crack. So it was just like a... A vicious cycle. A vicious cycle. Yeah, that's, I was going to say like a good arrangement for them, but a vicious cycle is probably better. I mean, I guess it was a good arrangement for them, but a vicious cycle at the same time. Yeah. Brian got companionship and sex. Jessica got money and drugs and ken got money for drugs so they all just were like working off of each other so that's this works yeah so that's how ken and brian wells are related so now the fbi finds jessica the sex worker and she's like i don't know anything about the bank robbery i don't want to talk to you guys and then took a while to even find her and the two refuses to talk to them so the FBI gets another search warrant and they search Ken Barnes's house, the drug dealer. And he's the worst hoarder of them all. His house was so gross. It had yeah. dog feces, dirty dishes. Oh, that's why they found the two unkept dogs. Yeah, that uh, they had to like have put down. They found yeah, two dogs that were so unkempt they had to be put down. They had just a mattress in the middle of the floor that maybe he slept on or maybe he just let sex workers bring guys in to sleep on to get money to buy drugs and there's a magazine they find that's about building electronics that could be used to help build a pipe bomb and then they find the two sick dogs that were so sick they had to be put down yeah so his house looked the worst of all in the videos it sounds the yeah. worst of all, really. Um, so yeah, they bring him sure. in, and he says he doesn't know anything about the heist. He says that Marjorie may have a, had a reason to do a bank robbery, though, because she had tried to get him to rob the bank to and to murder her dad. So he says that Marjorie thought her dad was giving away all of her inheritance And that she wanted Ken to kill him. And she concocted a plan for him to rob the bank to get enough money to pay him to murder her dad. (laughs) Which just doesn't make sense. Like, hey, you want to kill my dad? I'll pay you money. And he's like, how much money? And she's like, $250,000. All you got to do is rob a bank first and get $250,000 and then go kill my dad. It's a good deal, right? Yeah, no. Like, why wouldn't you just rob a bank for $250,000 and then not kill anybody? What? Yeah. Like, she's doing nothing. But whatever. That was her plan. 
So that story seems insane. This is what he's telling the cops, and they're like, that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes no sense at all, even for a crazy person. Like, no, no. But they're interviewing Ken in, like, 2005, two years after the murder, and he's like, I told the cops she did this when they first interviewed me after the pizza bombing in 2003. So they go back and look at his video interrogation in 2003, and in that video, he was like, Marjorie asked me to kill her dad, and the police didn't ask any follow-up questions because it didn't have anything to do with the pizza bombing, so yeah. it just kind of dropped. But his story didn't change in those two years. She, He's like, she asked me to kill her dad. Why isn't anybody listening to me? So I feel like his story is legit. Kind of. I mean, he's a drug dealer, so like it doesn't make a lot of sense, the bank robbery aspect of it. But I feel like, yeah, she probably did say something about wanting him to kill her dad. I don't know if she said anything about wanting him to rob the bank. Yeah, I believe the killing her dad part. Me too. So, he says that she offered him $250,000 to kill her dad. And he was like, okay, give me half up front. And then he's like, well, I wasn't going to do it, but I wanted to see if she'd be dumb enough to give me any money. (laughs) And she didn't. But, uh... Well, she did it because she was going to make me go to a bank to get paid. Yeah, exactly. But he was like, I wasn't going to kill anybody. I just told her I was going to see if she'd give me any money before I did it. Slash didn't do it. <laughs> so then the documentary <laughs> cuts to an interview with Marjorie and her lawyer. Again, that same interview. And he's asking her if she did ask Ken Bards to kill her father. And she just like loses it. And she's like, I've killed two boyfriends. In self-defense, but I killed them. Would I have to hire someone to kill my father? And it's like, so you're straight up admitting you killed your first boyfriend in 1984 that you got away with because you said you were mentally unstable or whatever. Or it was self-defense. And so she got found, like, not guilty for that one. And then she's admitting now she killed Jim Rothen. Rodden. Yeah. Rodden. Because she is already serving the time for that one. So now she's, like, just openly admitting that she killed him. So she's saying, I killed two boyfriends in self-defense. She throws that in there. But when you listen to her say it, it's, like, totally an afterthought, and she's just trying to get it out so she can continue on with her, like, I killed him! Would I really have to hire somebody to kill my dad? And it's like, what? What kind of defense is that? Is that... You're not helping yourself right now with that statement. Yeah, like, do you not see how you're making it worse? That's Um, not better. I killed two other men. Why would I have to hire someone to kill this one? Well, you've really tried to pin that second one you killed on someone else, so... Yeah, so obviously you wouldn't need to hire someone, so you probably did it, right? Yeah. Like, uh, we're gonna, exactly. Yeah, maybe you would have killed him yourself, but yeah, I could totally see you trying to hire someone to kill your dad. There's no domestic abuse you can claim there. So then we cut to an interview with her dad, and he's this like really old man, and he's watering these pretty flowers on his porch, just being adorable, talking to the narrator about how like this plant isn't fully 
flowered yet, but it's going to be so pretty in a couple days. And it's he's just so cute. Uh, I have a thing for old men. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if you guys don't know already, Maggie just loves fucking old men. I so. love fucking old men. I love old men. Well, she loves old men so much. So she just has this thing about old men. I just have a so. soft spot in my heart for old men. They just get me. Yeah, she has the biggest soft spot for these little old men. So whenever there's an old man involved, like, Maggie's hooked. Uh, yeah, and he's just, like, he has one child, and she's a lunatic. Yeah, and she is a lunatic. So they're asking him about this, and he's just on his porch with his flowers, and he's like, yeah, Marjorie's not even in my will anymore. <laughs> We were close when she was really little. She's an only child. Her mother doted spoiled. her. And she's spoiled. Yeah. And he's like, she started hoarding at a really young age. And it worried them a lot. But back then, like, that was, what, 1940-something? Yeah. A long ass time ago. You didn't talk about mental illness. You didn't... No. deal with that so they were like this is fucking weird that she needs to keep every piece of garbage or whatever you know every day's yeah. newspaper and so she started hoarding and they were like Ugh, oh no this is not normal but they never really came to terms with her mental illness in its full capacity and they spoiled her they bought yeah. her homes they paid her bills because she could never keep a job so they just paid her way and then she started getting in legal trouble. And that's when they stopped just giving her money to get by. And I think her mom died and her dad was just like, you know, I don't want to give money to someone who's going to spend it illegally or use my money to get away with doing things illegal. So he just started like giving gifts to friends and neighbors. He started spending his money on other people that appreciated it more. And she was pissed. So yeah. He's old and he's just kind of like spending his money on strangers and she doesn't like that because it's supposed to be her money. As her dad says she was a really good liar and she started just only coming around when she wanted something and that she never knew the meaning of love. And he seems so sad when he says that. <laughs> like he just seems so alone in the world and it breaks my heart and I just love him. Yeah. That's sad. His wife's gone. His only daughter doesn't know the meaning of love. And he's just like buying gifts for neighbors because he wants to just help people. I hope his neighbors are just as sweet to him. Me too. I hope he has someone like taking care of him. Like, I feel like at this point he might be gone. But yeah, I hope he was well taken care of slash still is if he's still around. I literally just have my note. I love her dad. <laughs> he is a sweetie uh, so at this point Marge is in prison and she's hearing stories about Ken Barnes ratting her out and she becomes obsessed with him so now before she was like oh Bill Rothstein did this Bill Rothstein killed Brian Wells Bill Rothstein planned the whole pizza bombing but now she's like Bill Rothstein and Ken Barnes did the pizza bombing Bill Rothstein and Ken Barnes did everything so she was obsessed with blaming Bill now she's obsessed with blaming Bill and Ken and saying that they are framing her Bill's dead so now all of her framing agenda is getting blamed on Ken instead of Bill. 
Yeah. And she also says the government is framing her because, you know, they need a scapegoat. Scape- yeah. And it's you, Marjorie. It's definitely you. Because they want to protect Bill Rothstein and Ken Barnes for some reason. Yeah. Um, so she agrees to go with the FBI around town to point out her whereabouts from the day of the pizza bombing. And she's just kind of happy to get out of prison. They go through like a drive through get her some food. They're kind of joking around, driving around. And um, at some point on the drive, she slips and she mentions that Bill Rothstein had asked her for two kitchen timers. And that was super significant information because they had never released in the media that there were two timers in the bomb. And there's no way she could just be making that information up to make Bill look bad. So that proves she knew at least a little bit more than she had told them up until this point. Yeah, 100%. And as soon as she said it, she realized it. And she shut up and she was just like, I want to go back. I'm done. And so they had to drive her back to prison and let her go. But that gave them enough to be like, ah, you know more. We know you know more. Yeah, we got you. She gets to the point, her default response whenever anybody asks her if she knows anything or was involved, she says, I didn't need to rob a bank. I was rich. Yeah, exactly. So they look into this and they're like, did she have money? And she did. Um, She had some money from her parents. They had bought her homes in the past and stuff. And she didn't ever have to pay rent or anything like that. But she also had money from lawsuits. She gotten really good at lawsuits. Yes. Her first husband had died from, like, falling and hitting his head mysteriously. And then he ended up dying at the hospital. And she sued the hospital for malpractice and got, like, $175,000 or something. And there was a bunch of other lawsuits and stuff. And she didn't trust banks because of her, like, delusions and stuff. And so she just kept a bunch of cash in her home. Like, a lot of cash. She did have money but it was all just cash hidden in her hoarder house and at one point in time she apparently owed ken barnes a bunch of money and wouldn't pay him for drugs i guess because ken barnes is a drug dealer i don't know what else she would owe him money for and so he got some of his friends to rob her house and stole hundred thousand dollars from her home and she never pressed charges And he even later admitted that he did it, and she said that he did it, but she never pressed charges. So, like, that's a thing. Both of them admit happened, but neither of them pressed charges for it because it was, like, illegal money to begin with, I guess. Yeah, that's weird. And this becomes the biggest help in the investigation because Marjorie and Ken both like to talk, and whoever says the right thing first is going to be on the FBI's favor, you know? Yeah. So... They're both kind of releasing a little bit more information about the other one and, like, trying to get off the hook themselves. And finally, Ken just confesses that he knows what happens in the pizza bombing. He was in on it, and Marjorie was the mastermind. End of part three. And that's how part three ends. Okay, so, moving right along. Part four is the confessions. 
We open this episode on Ken Barnes being taken out of a police car by the FBI guys. A reporter's asking him if he knew um, Brian was going to die in the bank robbery. And he's like, nope. And they're like, did you make the bomb? And he's like, no. He tells the FBI that the day before the bank heist, there was a meeting to discuss the whole plan. And the meeting was at Bill Rothstein's house. The meeting consisted of Bill Rothstein, Marjorie, Floyd Stockton, who was Bill's roommate at the time, who was the rapist of the mentally handicapped teenager, and Bob Panetti was there, according to Ken. He was the man who died of an overdose three days after the pizza bombing that also worked at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. And then Ken Barnes was there, and he says Brian Wells was there that day as well. Ken says, so this is all just Ken's confession to the FBI, and I don't buy it 100%. So Ken says that his role in the heist was to be the lookout. Marjorie came to his house to pick him up, and he asked where Jim was. Jim was Marjorie's boyfriend, Jim Roden, that was dead in a freezer at this point. And three weeks ago. Yeah, who'd been dead in a freezer for three weeks, but he apparently was supposed to be the driver. And so when Marjorie picked up Ken, Ken was like, where's Jim? And she's like, oh, he um, is sick, so I'm going to drive. And so he's like, okay, whatever. So they go meet Bill at the gas station. Bill calls in the pizza order from this payphone at the gas station with Marjorie standing with him, and then they all go to Bill's house. They go to Bill's house for a minute to regroup or something, and then they all go up the road. It's like a dirt road from Bill's house to this cell tower, and they wait for their pizza delivery. Brian Wells delivers the pizza. He gets out of the car and gives them the pizza, and he's just standing there waiting to be paid. Marjorie, Bill, and Ken start eating the pizza, like standing there talking to him, and Floyd, the roommate-slash-rapist, comes out from behind them with the bomb collar. And at this point, Brian's eyes eyes get real wide and he realizes something bad is going to start happening and he starts to run away. But Ken grabs him and hits him. And then they hold him down, put the bomb around his neck, and Brian Wells is saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But Marge puts the t-shirt over the bomb and someone hands him the nine-page note. Marge tells him that if he gets caught, he needs to blame black guys for doing it. And then they give him the cane gun that's like a homemade cane slash gun. And they tell him if he has any problems just to use that gun. And he leaves. I guess he sorts himself out. I don't know. And Marge and Ken get in a car and go across the street with binoculars to watch the bank robbery. They see the cops coming, and they leave, because they're like, oh shit. Like, no thanks, I'm out. He's getting busted real quick. So they leave, they go back to Bill Rothstein's house, switch vehicles, and then that's when Marjorie goes the wrong way down the highway in a gold car, and almost hits that other witness that came forward, like, two years after the fact. So... Ken says, as far as he knew, the bomb was fake and it was never supposed to explode. But Bill and Marge made a real bomb and didn't tell anyone else that was in on the plan. So the FBI go back to 
Washington State, where Floyd, the roommate slash rapist, is being held in prison for the rape. And he instantly is like, let's make a deal. Like, you guys got me. Give me a deal and I'll tell you everything. And so they're like, okay, we'll give you immunity if you testify against Marjorie. Immunity and fucking murder, bank robbery, whatever. Cool. So they agree to give him immunity. He confesses that um, he confesses in March of 2007, three and a half years after the bombing. He says he tried to help make the bomb, but he didn't do a very good job. So Bill got mad and took over and just did it himself. He says that Marge was there and Bill ordered him to put the bomb on Brian. He said he could see the fear in Brian's eyes and it upset him how scared Brian was when he put the bomb on him. So he just left after he did it. He put the bomb on him and was just like, I don't want to be involved from here on out. So he just started walking down the dirt road and was like, I'm done. Went back, packed his stuff up and moved out of Bill's house like right then. But the entire time he was walking down that dirt road, he was like, I'm going to be shot in the back right now. Like, I'm about to die. But he didn't. So he still put a fucking bomber on another man's neck knowing what he was fucking doing. But whatever. And he was like, if I got shot walking down that dirt road and somebody found my body, no one would care. I'm a child molester. Like a handicapped child molester. If they find my dead body, people are going to be like, that's too bad. So he was like, I'm going to die. And he didn't. And he ran away to Washington and eventually got arrested for that child rape. That's sad, but true. I don't think it's that sad. Um, Personally, like he took advantage of a handicap. It's not sad, sad, but it's just sad that, like, yeah. But, I mean, he deserves that. I'm not sad about that. It's sad that people might not care about someone's murder, but he would literally be murdered after putting a bomb on another man's neck. Yeah, that's true. And after raping a mentally challenged teenager. So, no, fuck this guy. Whatever. He didn't get shot. Pretty much. He could be found dead on the road, and I wouldn't give a shit. He got immunity in this whole situation, too. Yeah, fuck that guy. So... Ken gets no charges pressed against him for any of his involvement because he agrees to tell them what he knows and he does help them piece together the crime. So without him, they're kind of stuck. So I guess whatever. Uh, it's That's hard though because he's a piece of shit also. Yeah, he's a rapist, drug dealing piece of shit who put a bomb around another man's neck who ended up dying from that bomb and he got no charges for that. And, well, I'm going to zip it because I don't want to get ahead of our recap. Yeah. So, Ken and Floyd, the former roommate. Oh, wait. That was Floyd. Oh, I got them all mixed up. I was combining Ken and Floyd. So, Ken is a drug dealer, but Floyd's the one who got immunity for giving that testimony. He's the one who put the bomb on Brian, not Ken. Floyd did it. Sorry. Okay, okay. My bad, my bad, my bad. So Floyd is the rapist who put the bomb on the guy and then just walked down the road. Ken was still involved up to this point. He didn't leave. He watched the bank robbery and the police come and whatever. So Floyd leaves. He pieces the fuck out after putting the bomb on the guy and then he gets immunity for telling them what happened. So Ken's admitted at this point. He told them Floyd was involved. So they talk to both Ken and Floyd. And 
both of them say that Brian Wells was involved, but they don't know how or when he actually got involved. So they're both like, yeah, no, he, he knew about the bank robbery, uh, but I don't, I don't know how or when or what. Uh, yeah, but I think he was involved. So they don't know shit about Brian Wells, basically. The FBI still can't tell, ultimately, if it was Marge or Bill that masterminded the whole idea. They are pretty sure Bill built the bomb, but did Marge tell him to do it? Like, what was her part? What was his part? So now we're four years after the pizza bombing, and Marjorie is finally charged with bank robbery, and so is Ken Barnes. He didn't get a deal. He just confessed. And when she's arrested... The U.S. attorney makes a, pre a press briefing, and at that press briefing, he says that they believe Brian Wells was involved in the bank robbery knowingly, that he was willingly there and willingly committed the bank robbery. And his family was there at this pre press briefing, and they were livid. They were yelling back at this press briefing and being like, you're a liar, he's a yeah. victim, not a co-conspirator, like, this is ridiculous. And there's some random witness that was driving down the street the day before the pizza bombing, and they saw say they saw Brian Wells leaving Bill Rothstein's house that day. But how the fuck do they know? They were in their car, he was in his, I don't know. So Brian's family is obviously livid. They can't believe that their dead brother is being called a criminal four years after he was murdered via bomb on national TV and no charges are being brought against any of the people who committed his murder. No. No charges. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. So since he's considered a co-conspirator, they can't press murder charges because if he yeah. was in on the plan, apparently it's not murder. Yeah, apparently. According to the law... Which is insane. He's not fucking murdered. He didn't agree to be murdered. Even if he agreed to rob a bank, he didn't agree to have his head blown up. Like, how is that not murder? He I feel like if he, yeah, I feel like if he agreed to it, he had to have really have thought that bomb was fake. I personally don't think he agreed to it. And I will get into that more at the end, but i that's my personal feelings. I think he was surprised by the whole thing, and I think he didn't know. And I think he just, during the process, why he was so calm, I think he just didn't understand what was happening. He knew he wasn't robbing a bank, so nothing bad was going to happen to him in his head because he was a little simple, you know? He, yeah. he ran a little slower than the normal person, and so he was just like not understanding how severe a bank robbery is and he couldn't fathom that there was an actual bomb on his neck and that's why yeah. he was so calm and mean like well maybe you guys can go get the keys i don't think i have enough time and i, I just really don't think he knew but at this point ken and floyd are both saying he knew in some capacity his family is like wow brian's being framed for his own murder and no one's being charged with murder. So terrible. So Marjorie refuses to take any sort of plea deal. She says that they offered her a five-year plea. And why would they do that if they thought she was some mastermind evil genius? Why would they only offer her five years? That's crazy. 
but she's not going to take that. And it's like, okay, first of all, I don't believe they offered you that because I think you would take it because you're already in prison for seven years. So obviously, um, basically she just yells in her attorney's face for hours and hours and hours and he gets no help from her. So she's still in the psych ward serving seven years for the freezer body of Jim and they're pressing charges for bank robbery and she's determined to be unable to assist in her defense with her mental state. They talked to her attorney from the first trial in 1984 where she shot her boyfriend and said it was self-defense and He's like, even back in 1984, she was unstable. I tried to have her put away then because she shouldn't be free. She's not a healthy person. But she got released from mental hospitals back then and went on to kill more people. Like, I I literally tried to prevent this from happening and no one listened to me. And so after several months of medication, Marge is declared competent to stand trial for the bank robbery. And a trial date is set. October of 2010... Seven years after the bank robbery slash pizza bombing, the trial starts. Floyd, the roommate of Bill Rothstein, who was the rapist and had been given immunity to testify against her, had to have heart surgery and couldn't even testify against her. So he got immunity and didn't even have to do anything. Yeah, shit. And Marge was like, haha, you have to have heart surgery. Good, good. You deserve it. Um, Jessica Hoopstick, the sex worker that Brian Wells knew, was set to take the stand. And the narrator of the documentary was really excited to hear what she had to say. He was like, I've heard about her, but I haven't been able to track her down or get a hold of her. And when she's on the stand, she says that she had overheard a conversation about a bank robbery when she was at, I don't know if she was at Ken's house or Bill's house, but she was like, I don't. I didn't know who was involved. I just kind of overheard it from the other room. I don't know anything. And the entire time she was there, she wouldn't look at Marjorie. So after she gets off the stand, her and her family are like walking down the street back to their car and the narrator like chases them down and is like, hey, like, will you talk to me? I'm doing a documentary about this, just trying to piece all the pieces together. And I feel like you have some information I'd like. And she was like, okay, I'll meet you tonight. And then she just never showed up. So Marge takes the stand in her own defense, which is fantastic. But apparently, so she's really well medicated at this point. She's been in a psych ward being medicated to try and be competent to stand trial. So she is really well medicated at this point. And on the stand, she's like really sympathetic. She's not acting crazy. She cries when she talks about being abused as a child. She's kind of charming. She's nice to the people in the courtroom. Like, she actually kind of wins the jury over a little bit because she's well-medicated enough to do so, I think. Yeah, she's a smooth talker. Yeah, so there's 10 days of testimony, and then the jury deliberates for one and a half days, and they find her guilty on all counts conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery, and the use of just the use of a destructive device. Not murder, because you can't charge someone with murder if they were involved in the plan or something. I don't know. Still don't understand. So we hear some interview with Marjorie after the trial, after she's found guilty. And she really does sound a lot calmer in this. 
so she must be well medicated because she actually sounds like a completely different person. Yeah. Um, she's sentenced a couple months later in February of 2011, and she's sentenced to life plus 30 years for bank robbery and those other things. And Marjorie thinks she's the only one that's getting punished for this crime. Bill Rothstein died. Floyd serves a few years for that rape, but now he's free and he's married. He had to have that heart surgery and never testified against her, but he made it and he's married and just living his life. Ken Barnes is in prison, but he actually enjoys being in prison because he's finally clean and living like a somewhat healthy lifestyle. He says he was a horrible drug addict and now he's taken care of. He gets three meals a day. He's clean. He's happy. He has people to talk to, even if they're just old men in prison. At least he has that. So Yeah. I mean, if it works, it works, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if it's keeping you from being a shit person on the outside, okay. Yeah. So the biggest question most people have is, was Brian Wells involved in his own murder? And I feel like this was going to be the end of the documentary. Like, I feel like they probably had all this information and... Marjorie's convicted, Bill's dead, everybody's kind of going on about their lives, and he's probably trying to figure out how to put this all together into a documentary. But then it's like two years later, two and a half years later, and Trey, the documentarian, is still talking to Marge while she's in prison. It's been 10 years since the heist and three years since her trial, but for some reason he's still talking to her because he still has questions about if Brian was involved. And at this point, all of Marge's appeals are denied. There's no way she's getting out of prison for this crime. She's going to be in prison for the rest of her life. And he's like, maybe now she'll answer my question. So finally, he's like, was Brian involved? And she's like, yeah, I think he was involved. I don't like to say that for his family, but yeah, he was involved. And she's like, don't you think he was involved? And the narrator's like, I don't. And she loses her shit. She's like, you don't? Where do you get the idea that he's innocent? What are you thinking? And she's like, loses her ever-loving mind on the narrator that she's been talking to for 10 years. And he tries to say, like, he seems innocent. Like, I just can't understand why he would agree to that. And she just keeps talking over him and saying, why do you think that? Why do you think that? And then she, like, it clicks that, like, this documentary that's been in the works for the last 10 years might try and paint Brian Wells as an innocent man. And if he's innocent, she's guilty. And if ultimately it's found out that Brian Wells was not involved in the planning, someone can be tried for murder. And if you're tried for murder, you can be sentenced to death. So it's like it clicks with her that like, holy shit, this documentary might try and paint him like an innocent person. And she loses her mind. So you can kind of hear her like putting these pieces together while she's losing her shit. And he tries to tell her to calm down. And she freaks out and says, Brian Wells, uh, it's his own fault that she's in prison and she's sick of this shit. And then she hangs up on Trey. Um, there's no statute of limitation on murder, so if she's ever charged with murder for Brian Wells, she could be put to death. A couple months after this, Jessica Hoopstick, the sex Hoopstick, the sex worker, 
was imprisoned at the same prison as Marge. And Marge mentions this to Trey, the narrator, or he somehow finds out. And so he writes Jessica a letter and he asks her if she's willing to talk to him at all. And she's like, she doesn't say anything about the bank heist, but she says she's willing to talk about Brian Wells. And she says, despite the fact that Brian would pay her for sex, they were actually really good friends. He was a friend of her family. He would take her to doctor's appointments and grocery shopping. They cared about each other. It wasn't love, but he was a good guy. He was a family friend. They had a like decent relationship in friendship. But Marge finds out that Trey was talking to Jessica in prison, and she gets fucking pissed. So Marge is like, Jessica's a lying whore. Why are you talking to her? Because Marge thinks this documentary is going to be like painting her as this innocent woman in prison or some shit. Oh, yeah. Um, so Jessica gets out of prison and Brian, the narrator Trey mentions to her like, Marge is saying you're a big fucking liar. And so finally she's like, okay, I'll do an interview for your documentary. And she's in a work release program for her prison sentence or whatever. And so she agrees to meet up with Trey after her like work shift one day. And she tells Trey on camera that she's finally ready to tell the real story of what happened to Brian Wells. She wants people to know that he was innocent and he was a good man. She says that one day she went to Ken Barnes's house, the drug dealer, and she heard him and his friends talking about a bank robbery. They said they wanted to find someone who they could scare into robbing, robbing the bank. And they said it wouldn't be real. They just need someone that would be easy to scare and wouldn't immediately call the police. And they offered her $5,000 to help her them find this person. She says she was high for three days straight after that. And then she called Ken and said, can you give me money now if I give you a name of somebody? And he's like, I can give you crack. And she was like, same thing. crack. Yeah. She's like, that's what I would spend my money on anyways. So cool. So he gives her crack. She tells them that Brian Wells is a pushover. She brought Brian to Ken's house so Ken could see what he looked like and get an ID on him. She didn't introduce them. They didn't talk at all. She literally just was like pointing at Brian like, this is the guy. And Ken was like, cool. And Brian was just like, let's go have sex. So they also got Brian's work schedule from her so they knew if he'd be on shift the day of the bombing. She was with Brian the day before the bombing and she doesn't believe that he ever went to Ken Barnes's house or Bill, Bill Rothstein's house that day. He had no idea what was going to happen. He was not involved in the bank robbery. So Trey, the narrator of this docuseries, writes Ken Barnes in prison and tells him, hey, Jessica confessed. She told us everything she knows, how you guys got Brian's information. And at first, Ken Barnes is like, nope, that didn't happen. But then Trey gets on the phone with him, and Ken's like, yeah, Brian didn't know anything. Uh, he was tricked there to deliver the pizza, and he was completely innocent. So Trey, the narrator of this documentary, confronts Marjorie, and he's like, why would Brian be standing there at the cell towers waiting to be paid if he knew what was about to happen? And Trey tells Marge he knows Brian was innocent and 
that she and everyone else have just been lying to avoid the death penalty and murder charges. And she freaks out. She says she'll sue him if his movie implies that she's guilty and then she hangs up on him. The movie ends questioning if Marjorie or Bill Rothstein were the mastermind behind the pizza bombing altogether. Um, They definitely believe that it was Marjorie and not Bill and that she just had some crazy hold over him and he went along with her uh, because she, he just loved her. And she, I feel like they ran it together, though. I um, do, too. The documentary ends with footage of Brian Wells being blown up, and this time they show the entire bomb explosion, um, but they blur out his face because but- at the beginning they cut off as soon as the bomb starts exploding, and then at the end they show the whole thing but blur his face, and it's like, what does that do? I don't know. I don't. That doesn't do much. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a shot of his dead body, and then there's a picture of a young, beautiful Marjorie that slowly morphs into an older, evil-looking picture of Marjorie. And then there's text on screen saying that Jessica Hoopstick, the sex worker, gave birth to a baby shortly after the pizza bombing. Oh, yeah! And that oh. she believes Brian Wells is the father to her baby. And apparently they look identical, the baby Which- and Brian Wells. Do they have a way to do a paternity test? Probably. I don't think the documentarian did, and I don't know if Brian Wells' family would agree to that. But if they would, then yes. Um, I, would, I would be curious because I don't know about it. Yeah. Marjorie died of cancer on April 4th of 2017. She was buried in an unmarked grave in Texas, and no one was ever charged with murder for the death of Brian Wells. I still can't believe that. That's the thing that makes me so angry about this entire thing, that no one was charged with murder. Yeah, same. Because Ken and Floyd are both like, yeah, no, he knew. I don't know when he got involved or, like, how he knew. And they both were like, he looked fucking scared when we tried to put that bomb on him. He tried to leave. He tried to run away. We had to knock him to the ground and hit him to get the collar on him. But he knew. And it's like, how do you think he knew? Like, how do you think he knew if you had to fucking tackle him to the ground, hit him a couple times to even get the collar on him? Like, how the fuck do you think he knew? And Jessica's like, he didn't know shit. I told Ken, like, this guy's an easy mark and brought him around so he'd see his face and recognize him when he showed up. But I didn't introduce him. I didn't tell, like, Brian anything. I think Brian was a simple man who was doing the best he could with his fucking cats. And he didn't have normal relationships with women so he had these interesting relationships with sex workers and kind of took care of them and became friends with them and that's how he had a sexual life and he had sex with an addict who sold him out that's awful but i agree i don't i don't think he knew exactly what was going on i don't think he was in it to like Win it, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, so it just comes down to did Bill Rothstein or Marjorie plan the pizza bombing and why? And Marjorie's so deranged, it's hard to imagine her planning it. Yeah, she's super deranged. Like, But apparently she was super smart, too. She had, like, several master's degrees. 
she had or, at least one for sure and she said five but she was like confirmed to yeah. be a very very intelligent person so i believe there was more than one and bill rothstein also was in mensa like he's a very 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 smart man and they were just feeding each other's flames of insanity and i think personally i think bill found out he was dying of cancer and he wanted to prove that he was too smart like he wanted to commit the perfect crime that no one would ever solve and so he built this bomb and maybe he didn't like he wanted to commit a crime and didn't know what and marjorie was like i hate this bank they're letting my dad give away all of his money. And he was like, let's rob him. And she was like, okay. And so he, like, masterminded this plan. And she was just on for the ride because she had that vendetta. Back, yeah, that yeah. vendetta. That's what it's called. And, and so, yeah. That's what I think, at least. But who killed Jim? Roth, Jim Roden, her ex-other boyfriend in the freezer. I think she did it, and then Bill Rothstein hit the body for her. Same. Me too. And then I think he was like, well, I'm in it this far. I'm fucking dying of cancer. And then he didn't give a shit. And maybe that's what pushed him over the edge to commit his perfect crime in his mind. And yeah. that's what set the ball in motion with this bank robbery. I think that could easily be the reason. Um, yeah, I think that would be accurate. And then there's Bob Panetti. The co-worker at Mamma Mia Pizzeria that died of an overdose three days after the bank robbery slash pizza bombing. Yeah. And Ken said that Bob Panetti was at Bill's house in one of the planning meetings for the pizza robbery. There's nothing else linking. He wasn't there the day of the bombing. No one put him there, you know. And they all told the story. Literally nothing else links him to this crime at all except ken saying like well he was there at one of our planning meetings he wasn't involved he didn't have a part ken just happened to say that he was there and so was brian and we know brian wasn't so i don't think bob was either i think that's just like him trying to give the cops details that he doesn't have i don't think bob panetti was involved at all i think he was a drug addict I think he was nervous, and I think he accidentally overdosed. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that Bob Panetti was involved at all. I think either. he just had a drug problem and was nervous and accidentally took too much this time. And yeah, unfortunately, just, with drugs, that's that's what happens sometimes. That was just his demise. Yeah. Um, and one other thing I just have, like, noted that the bomb weighed 15 pounds. 15 pounds? Yeah, that's a lot of weight around your neck. Yeah, that's heavy and uncomfortable and no thank you. Yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then my one last question was how did they know that Brian loved scavenger hunts? Like it's so specific to him as a person because he would always do the weekly newspaper scavenger hunt in town to try and find the key or whatever for that. Like that was his thing. He just really enjoyed scavenger hunts. And it's like they knew that. It's like they knew and used that as some like sick extra layer to plot his demise is adding this like weird scavenger hunt that he could never solve. 
Ed Bennett was his sex worker lady, Jessica. and they got close, and he talked to her, and I bet she has more involvement. That than... she's admitting, maybe. Like, that seems yeah. like the only way they know that. Like, they're like, hey, do you know an easy mark? And she's like, oh, yeah, this is Brian. Like, I mean, high out of her mind and just wanting more drugs and being like, yeah, there's Brian. He's simple. He fucking loves scavenger hunts and he's really bad at them. And he definitely won't call the cops because he just like won't understand what's happening. Yeah. And they're like, perfect. Let's make a scavenger hunt. And then thinking they're all fucking smart and they're just fucking monsters. Yeah, they're all disgusting, horrible monsters. But I, I think that Hoopsick, the prostitute lady, definitely had more involvement than I think she's she finally came forward and said anything because honestly there was just a lot of unanswered questions about Brian's involvement until she finally like admitted you know like couldn't face the guilt anymore and admitted that she set him up yeah because everybody literally has just been blaming him like he knew that like how else would he have been there Unless he knew. And it's like, oh no, she set him up. That's how he would be there. That's how they knew he was an easy target. Her. She's the missing link. Yeah. That's so terrible that for so many years, though, it just goes on and they're like, oh, this guy was in on it. Well, until like, they stay, his family's like, no one's been charged with our brother's murder. Yeah. I see the soul. It's a really sad story. And interesting. And Marjorie's so deranged and Bill seems so calculated that it's hard to... Be like, yeah, she was the mastermind. But the, the docuseries really ends with being like, she's the mastermind. And she's so unhinged. I think she is evil. But I don't think she's an evil genius. I think Bill Rothstein knew he was dying. And after Marjorie called him saying she shot her boyfriend, he was like, already had these thoughts in his head because he knew he was dying of cancer. And he was like, okay, go big. So he hides this body, he plots a murder, does a scavenger hunt, he leaves all these extra red herrings, thinking no one's ever going to be able to untangle this web that he's laid, and then he dies without ever answering any questions, and Marjorie's in jail, and he thinks he's done it. Like, he dies thinking, convinced that he was smarter than the FBI. Which is crazy. That's what I think, at least. The documentary definitely thinks Marjorie did it, so. Well, I think I'm more on your scale. Like, I don't think it was all Marjorie. I think Bill Rothstein definitely played a huge part. And he knew that his demise was coming, so he was like, fuck it. Yeah, because Marjorie's already killed two men, like she said, and she got caught for it. She shot them both, and it was not discreet, you know? I mean, she had a bunch of other men in her life die mysteriously, so maybe she's smarter than I'm giving her credit for. But it just seems like she just is too brash to plan out something like this. Yeah, and it still just amazes me that he was never, like, arrested. Yeah, and then he just died a free man, basically, before he ever went to trial for his, like, fucking moving a body charges or whatever he was left with. Right? Because I feel like, I mean, if they find a dead body in your house, like, you really have to be held. He... And they didn't even find it in his house. They found it in Marjorie's house. And he admitted that he came and saw the body where it was shot. He's the one who wrapped it up. He dragged it out of the house. 
He replaced the stairs where there was too much blood. He wrapped the body up. He brought it to his house in his vehicle. He put it in his freezer. He bought stuff to put over over his windows and other things so he could cut up the body. He had all these things laid out and they found the body in his home. Like he did so many things. Maybe he didn't shoot the guy, but he broke a fuck ton of laws. Yeah, he transported a dead body. He removed it from a crime scene. He cut up a person. And he froze it, which is like... Concealed it. Dismembering a body. He didn't dismember it, but he disturbed a body. Like, he, he broke a shit ton of laws and didn't serve a day in jail for it. Which is insane to me. And I think he knew 100% what he was doing. I don't think I'll ever be able to wrap my mind around that 100%. I know, it makes me really angry that he just died thinking he was smarter than everyone. Yeah, he was like, oh. But even if he didn't die, there was no convincing him that he wasn't smarter than everyone. So I guess whatever. I, I don't know. Yeah. He just always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. I feel really bad for Brian Wells. And... Uh, Bob Panetti. Yeah, Bob Panetti and Brian Wells. And Jim Rodin. Jim Rodin, the boyfriend that was in the freezer, he was literally asleep on the couch when she shot him. There's a lot of, like, innocent men that died in this story. At least three. Yeah, at least. (laughs) Um, so, that is Evil Genius. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you disagree, if you think... Marjorie was completely to blame. If you think Brian Wells was in on it, let us know. Comment on our social media posts. Send us an email at crimecountrypod at gmail.com. We want to hear your feedback. Let us know what you think on this case because it's a doozy for sure. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this. Me too. Next week, I don't know what we're going to do, so tune in to see. (laughs) We'll see. What, what are we going to do? I think we should just pick a outside of the United States crime story to tell anywhere in the world except the U.S. I think that's fair game. Okay, and then we'll go from there. So, we'll see you next week. Let us know what you guys think. If you want us to do just more review episodes where we review, like, uh, 48 hours or random crime documentaries or anything like that, let us know because it's a lot of fun and If anybody kind of enjoys it, I'm all sorts of down to just start doing that more often. Uh, If not, and you want to just hear lesser known crime stories, let us know and we can keep doing what we've come to know for the last year. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to us. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.